Episode 4 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 1.3, Armed Conflict in Ancient Israel. Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this podcast we will discuss the context of the world in which the first prophet of the Book of Mormon, the prophet Lehi, lived, and how he and his family experienced armed conflict. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, let us begin. There are times that historians have referred to as a long century in history. In the history of the Kingdom of Judah, the 7th century BC was just such a long century. In some measures, it could be said to have begun in 721 BC with the destruction of the Kingdom of Israel and the forced dislocation of the people of that kingdom, and the century lasted until 586 BC and the destruction of the Temple of Solomon and the captivity of the people of Judah by the Neo-Babylonians. This century and the events associated with it had dramatic effects on the people of that day and those of the Jewish religious faith and cultural identity down to the present. In this episode, I will provide a brief narrative of the critical events. Though Lehi did not live through all of this period, it is certain that he lived through a good portion of the events or the aftermath of the events. For the purpose of my argument, I assume that Lehi was born about 650 BC, making him in his mid-50s or 60s when he fled Jerusalem. It is certain that the major military events described in this chapter would have made an impact on the extended members of Lehi's family. His father, grandfather, uncles, and cousins would have had some recollection of these historic events, even if they did not have personal connections with them. The influence of these events reverberates through the Hebrew Bible and must have done so through the brass plates. These were the events contemporary with the prophet Isaiah and others of the prophets. The importance of this long century in shaping those of literal as well as conceptual Israel cannot be underestimated as this was the time frame from whence we draw the terms lost tribes of Israel and Babylonian captivity. This is also the period of the great prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and others whose names we do not have. It was also the time of the prophet Urijah, whom this episode will briefly discuss. Nephi begins his record with a seemingly small statement from 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 4. I quote in part, For it came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. In that same year there came many prophets. This statement is like saying, in 2020, the year of the COVID-19 pandemic, such a statement automatically puts the hearer in a context. The listener might know how well their favorite sports team did, or, in the case of 2020, if there even was a sports season. Who was the leader of the country? What wars or catastrophes occurred? It puts you in a place and time with a history and real people and events. What does it mean to be in the first year of the reign of Zedekiah? I want to briefly cover the things that this certainly called to mind for those of Nephi's generation. 
Following that, we will briefly discuss the broader aspects of the long century previously mentioned and then focus on war of that same era and what Nephi probably took away from those experiences. Here is a list of some of what Lehi and Nephi experienced that leads them to appreciate the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. These events are given in some detail in 2 Kings chapters 22 to 25 and 2 Chronicles chapters 34 to 36. King Josiah is crowned king at age 8, at about 630 BC or so. For sake of my supposition, recall that Lehi is probably about the same age as Josiah. He might be a few years older. This means that Lehi was a young man or an adult as these things happen. Josiah was righteous and he sought to turn Judah away from the worship of idols and sacred groves. He removed the groves and sent people to clean out the temple and essentially do a makeover of that structure in the 18th year of his reign or at about age 26. In the process of the makeover, they discovered the law hidden within the walls of the temple. Josiah directs that there be a covenant ceremony and a great celebration of the Passover, one of the greatest Passover celebrations in Old Testament record. Remember that Lehi was an adult for these events. He knew life before the law was found and life after the law was found. Might this make a profound impression on a person about the importance of scripture and the need to have a copy with the family as they journey in the wilderness? Based off the sacrifices offered at the Passover ceremony, I am supposing a population of the city of Jerusalem of about 50,000 people. The numbers for the sacrificial animals donated by the ruler and other prominent figures in, is given in 2 Chronicles 35 verses 7 to 9. This will matter later when we look at how many people are taken in captivity by Nebuchadnezzar in the siege of 598 to 597 BC. The Egyptians were a competing power with the Assyrians or the Neo-Babylonians and regularly sought to generate problems. In 609 BC, the pharaoh Necho II marched his army through Judah, heading toward the great battle of Carchemish, where the Neo-Babylonians defeated the combined armies of Assyria and Egypt. Josiah opposed Necho II. He levied an army, marched it north, and interposed on Necho II's route of march. Later, we will discuss what happened there in a bit more detail. What matters in this list of events is that Josiah was killed in that battle. The army of Judah returned to Jerusalem, and the people selected Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, to be king. He reigned for only a couple of months. When Necho II returned from his loss at Carchemish, he selected Jehoiakim, another of Josiah's sons, to be king, and he took Jehoahaz with him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was a wicked king who ruled about eleven years. During his reign, he was compelled to pay tribute to Babylon, but regularly leaned toward Egypt. In this period, Assyria was destroyed as a regional power, and Babylon, or the Neo-Babylonian Empire, became the dominant regional power. At one point, they ruled from the Nile to Mesopotamia. Egypt regularly challenged the Babylonians, and often the small states in the Levant would band together against the Babylonians. It is always important to remember that Mesopotamia is a long ways away from the Mediterranean coast in a day without motor transport and with no telephones. I want to digress briefly to explain the term Levant. Levant is derived from Latin and French words that mean rising. 
Literally, it is the place where the sun rises, or the east. In the case of both Latin and French speakers in the medieval world, this was a reference to the eastern Mediterranean. In Western academic circles, the Levant includes the modern states of Syria, Lebanon, Israel, most of Jordan, and portions of Turkey and Egypt. Now back to the list of happenings leading up to the first year of the reign of Zedekiah. During Jehoiakim's reign, there was a prophet named Urijah who called for the people to repent and to continue their tribute to Babylon. I will briefly address him later in this episode. Because of refusal to pay tribute to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar invaded and laid siege to Jerusalem. Jehoiakim died and his son, Jehoiachin, ruled. Jehoiachin refused to pay tribute, as had his father. And after only three months of ruling, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the city of Jerusalem from 598 to 597 BC. As I have mentioned, and will continue to mention, a siege in the ancient and modern world was the worst environment imaginable. Jehoiachin came out of the city and surrendered himself to the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem 18,000 people. Presumably these were adults, and probably the number includes men taken, though it may have been men and women in the count. The number included 10,000 captives, 7,000 soldiers, and 1,000 craftsmen. Consider the demographic devastation that comes from 18,000 adults taken from a city whose population was maybe 50,000. Even if the captives came from across the entire kingdom, that still may have been 18,000 from 240,000 or so. This is still a massive number. Among those taken were Ezekiel and Daniel. The author of Second Kings says that none remained save the poorest sort, those who we begin the Book of Mormon with. Laban, Lehi, and Ishmael are those who were of this poorest sort. Nebuchadnezzar then places Jehoiachin's uncle, Mataniah, on the throne and changes his name to Zedekiah. All of this the discovery of the law, the renewal of covenants, the defeat of the army at the hands of the Egyptians, the replacement of one king after another from Josiah to Jehoahaz by the people of Judah for three months, to Jehoiakim by the Egyptians for eleven years, to Jehoiachin by the Babylonians for three months, to Zedekiah by siege and the Babylonians. The preaching, escape, capture, and execution of Urijah the prophet, the competition of Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, and the siege and surrender of the city to the Babylonians, as well as the mass deportation of the leading members of society. All of this is captured in the simple statement of Nephi, for it came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. In that same year there came many prophets." Close quote. Though there may be some way to explain how Joseph Smith might have known all of this, it seems highly unlikely that a man of his limited education would have understood how dynamic and complex was the time in which Lehi lived and the Book of Mormon begins. Lehi did not live in a time of regular turbulence for his kingdom or the region, but he lived in a time of extraordinary turbulence, confusion, conflict, and transformation for his nation, his land, his people, and the entire region. 
there have been few times of greater or even equal turbulence in the eastern Mediterranean or Levant before or since this long century. I have given a bunch of details from the middle and end of the long century. Now I want to discuss some of the other events and how they occurred and what this explains about armed conflict. I am not intending to give a Near Eastern history. Therefore, these remarkable events will be dealt with in a simple narrative designed to assist listeners in understanding the events rather than in providing an overwhelming amount of information that may only confuse rather than clarify. The century began with the dominant regional power being Assyria. Assyria could be considered as being at its height during this period as it reaffirmed its control over the Levant, captured and gained suzerainty over Egypt, and continually reasserted its authority and supremacy through royal and delegated campaigns. However, it was also in its last century of its existence. The fact that Assyria not only conquered cities, but had to regularly campaign in the region every two to three years to either suppress rebellions or punish conspiracies to rebel, demonstrated both the weakness of influence of the Assyrian Empire and the general challenge faced by rulers of this period to maintain a large empire with ancient methods of transportation and communication. The capture of Egypt by the Assyrians had a second-order effect of the weakening of an unpopular and foreign dynasty within Egypt and opened the way for another dynasty to emerge. The emergence of the new dynasty effectively cast off Assyria as its overlord and reasserted internal Egyptian control. Once the Assyrians were removed from Egypt, Egypt began to make mischief for Assyria throughout the Levant. The new Egyptian dynasty understood that they could not directly challenge Assyria militarily, but they sought to weaken the Assyrian position in what could be referred to as the Egyptian near abroad, or those areas in close proximity to Egypt's borders. Egypt achieved some success making this mischief among the various small states in the Levant. From Egypt's domestic control in about 660-ish BC to the end of this episode's story in 586 BC, Egypt swapped sides multiple times but it always sought to achieve weakness in Mesopotamian control of the Levant. When Assyria was dominant, it opposed Assyria, or encouraged the small Levantine states to oppose Assyria. When Babylon rose up against Assyria, Egypt fought with Assyria against Babylon. When Babylon was dominant, Egypt opposed it directly, or allied with or persuaded the small Levantine states to oppose Babylon. It may be useful to identify the variety of small states in this region that existed contemporary with Lehi and the events of this episode. The kingdoms included the Hebrew kingdoms of Judah and Israel, which existed from the Mediterranean coast, generally speaking, to the Jordan River. The borders of these countries changed often, so only generalizations can be given for this period. Along the southern coast of the Mediterranean was the small kingdom of Philistia. To the north of Israel and also along the coast were a series of Phoenician city-states. The Phoenicians, similar to the Greeks, did not have a strong central authority and therefore cities like Tyre and Sidon were effectively independent states in this period. In the north was a Syrian state that was centered on the city of Damascus. Generally, 
east of the Jordan River were the states of Ammon, Moab, and Edom. To the south, in the deserts that bordered the Red Sea, were various nomadic Bedouin tribes. Sometimes these tribes coalesced into something like a state, as was the case with the Midianites. Normally, they were nomadic herdsmen and raiders. This variety of small states existed in this land bridge between Africa, Asia, and Europe because throughout this period all of the larger kingdoms and empires in Asia Minor, Mesopotamia, and Egypt were all too weak to completely dominate the broken and difficult terrain that ran along this rift zone with the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee at its center. These states enjoyed the blessings of living in difficult terrain in a time of weak and quarreling major powers. Despite these blessings, the small states regularly quarreled among themselves, allied together against each other and outside powers, and sought to lay claim to dominance within the Levant on their own. Judah and Israel typically quarreled and sought alliances with others against their sister kingdom. It was such an alliance between Israel and Damascus that caused Judah to seek the support and protection of Assyria and brought the larger empire into the region and direct conflict with the Hebrew kingdoms. Several of the kingdoms initially banded together against Assyria, and they were able to keep the Assyrian army out of the Levant. This is important in understanding the Assyrian military. It was not a completely dominating power. Coalitions of smaller states could, and did, regularly thwart Assyrian will and expansionist desires. I will give more detailed description of the Assyrian war machine as a case study of Levantine or Near Eastern warfare in a couple of minutes. Depending on the exact time, others of the smaller kingdoms entered into protectorate relationships with Assyria, where the nation paid tribute for protection from Assyrian aggression and from the aggression of neighboring states. Judah entered into such an agreement against the states of Israel and Damascus. After the threat of aggression ended, Judah regularly refused to send the agreed-upon tribute. This happened on several occasions. These occasions were the pretext for the Assyrian campaigns against Judah, particularly the campaign in 701 BC, which resulted in the sieges at Lachish and Jerusalem. Egypt interjected itself into the equation to question the power of Assyria and give the kingdoms reason to doubt the wisdom of paying tribute to Assyria. Assyria regularly struggled with its internal relationship with Babylon. Babylon, at the beginning of this long century, typically existed as a quasi-independent, subordinate kingdom in the Assyrian Empire, ruled by relatives of the Assyrian king. The challenge was that ruling Babylon brought with it tremendous wealth and power. Few men could withstand the temptation to use that power for their own benefit. There were several revolts, rebellions, battles, and wars between Assyria and Babylon. It was this significant political fault line that ultimately led to the destruction of the Assyrian Empire, as it was Neo-Babylonian armies that captured the cities of Nineveh and Carchemish. Once again, Egypt was in the mix as it allied with Assyria against Babylon. The collapse of Assyria led the small states of the Levant to refuse paying tributes as most sat back and avoided the fighting. 
Josiah, king of Judah, interjected his kingdom into the power politics of the region as he led his army to confront the Egyptians as they moved north through the region to fight in the final clashes between Assyria and Babylon to the north. Josiah's death in the Battle of Megiddo led to internal turmoil that the Egyptians then sought to capitalize on. They placed a puppet ruler on the throne, only to have the Babylonians do the same years later. The critical point of all this is to express the historical and political complexity of the region. To appreciate that Lehi was not simply prophesying in a wicked nation, but rather in a wicked nation in the midst of political upheaval and shifting alliances and power bases. Lehi lived from about 650 BC and he left Jerusalem sometime around 600 to 590 BC. I want to go back a bit before Lehi's birth to the time of the Assyrian domination of the region in the 720 to 700 BC period. This includes a time when Isaiah was prophet and Hezekiah was king in Jerusalem and the Assyrian army was marching to the city that it then surrounded and laid siege to in 701 BC. Before diving into that story, I want to give an example of how horrible a siege was in the ancient world and why I say that it was the worst environment imaginable. To do this, I want to take you to 724 to 721 BC when Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, laid siege to Samaria as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 24 to chapter 7 verse 16. The siege was broken by a miracle of the Lord, but the part I want to read expresses just how bad a siege can become for those enduring it. I quote from 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 26 to 30. And as the king of Israel was passing by upon the wall, there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord do not help thee, whence shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor, or out of the winepress? And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? And she answered, This woman said unto me, Give thy son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son, and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son, that we may eat him. And she hath hid her son. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes, and he passed by upon the wall. And the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. I hope that I have made sufficiently clear that a siege was the worst environment imaginable in the ancient world, as it remains to this day. In this worst environment, Hezekiah, during the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C., says the following to the people, as recorded in Second Chronicles 32, verses 6 to 8, quote, And he set captains of war over the people, and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city, and spake comfortably to them, saying, Be strong and courageous, be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us, and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hezekiah's confidence came only after he was instructed and strengthened by the prophet Isaiah. 
His was the confidence of one who walked with God, and not the confidence of man, because in the 7th and 8th centuries BC, there was no more feared military power than that of the Assyrian army. The Assyrians also provided us with the most detailed and useful descriptions and depictions of armed conflict in this century by means of their monumental architecture commemorating their successful conflicts. Even if we were not interested in the specific plight of Jerusalem, the warfare of this era is best described in the images of the Assyrians, now displayed in the British Museum in London, and the text of the Hebrew Scriptures which we have today as the Biblical Old Testament. This was a remarkable military machine, but it was also a machine that developed its reputation as much through propaganda, intimidation, and terror as it did through actual battlefield exploits. The Assyrian army was an amalgamation of multiple nationalities, ethnicities, and languages. The large army led by the king was probably not entirely a standing army of professional soldiers like the Roman army of the late Republic or Imperial periods nor was it a group of mercenaries like that which formed a significant part of the Hellenistic army of Alexander the Great. It is likely that the Assyrians had a professional corps group of soldiers with the rest levied for each campaign or conflict. The means of waging war and its comparative complexity causes me to believe that the professional force included at least a core group of military leaders and engineers. The Assyrians were military-minded and viewed military success as a bona fides for each of the leaders of the empire. This was not unique among the states that preceded and followed them. The Assyrians were also interested in growth and stability in a significant way. Archaeological evidence shows that many of the cities destroyed by the Assyrians within the Levant later grew and developed in terms of size, settlement, and trading diversity. This stands in marked contrast to the cities destroyed by the Neo-Babylonians that remained destroyed or with very minor occupation throughout that empire's reign in the area. Only after the arrival of the Persians and their more open and encouraging policies did those cities show life and development once again. Therefore, the image of the Assyrians as ruthless butchers or brutal conquerors may have been overblown, both by the Assyrians themselves, as they used propagandized terror as a weapon in their arsenal, and their Old Testament contemporaries, who through the stories of Jonah and Isaiah give us reason to fear them. One of the Assyrian techniques following conquest of a city or region was mass deportations. The Assyrians would regularly move large groups of people out of a recently conquered area and take them to another part of the empire and then bring in other nationalities and settle them in the recently vacated areas as noted in the story of the aftermath of the conquest of the kingdom of Israel from 2 Kings 17.24. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cuthoth and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they possessed Samaria, and dwelt in the cities thereof." One of the key purposes of this technique was to disaggregate the nation conquered, to make them disunified, and therefore negate, or at least mitigate, any future disruptions or potential for revolution. By placing smaller groups of nationalities around each other, 
weakened the ability to resist as nearly every group would perceive themselves as being a cultural island and unable to fight the will of the empire. In some measure, this technique would have made the Assyrian overlords seem more powerful in comparison to each subjugated people, further enhancing the perception of power so important to Assyrian dominance. The point of these comments is to place the Assyrian war machine in proper and accurate perspective. It was a tool of a larger policy of expansion and growth, and that should not be forgotten or casually dismissed simply because of the negative perception portrayed either within the pages of the biblical Old Testament or through their own carvings at their own palace. It is certain that the Assyrians possessed the varied capabilities so effectively portrayed in their relief sculptures. The question raised here is whether or not these diverse and seemingly overwhelming capabilities were regularly used, or maybe they were used in a singular event or campaign and recorded to promote the conception of a force with a nearly infinite military tool bag at its disposal. The people of Israel and those of Judah did experience some of the diversity of the Assyrian war machine, and that diversity is explained next. At the basic level, the Assyrian army was like all of the other major militaries in the Levant and Mesopotamia. It was a spear-based military. The spearman was the center of the infantry force. It was also the center of the larger military system, as there were shield-bearers created simply to protect the spearmen from attack from missile weapons. Each soldier was also armed with a thrusting sword, for when the fighting was too close for the spear to be useful. In addition to the infantry, there was a diversity of missile weapons, from slings and stones to bows and arrows. Over the years, the armor worn by each soldier developed from simple padded clothing to complete mail shirts. Shields also developed from individual hand-carried forms to larger-than-man-sized shields that were carried by a second person. The diversity of weapons described above was a staple of the Assyrians in that they regularly employed not just the spear-wielding infantry force, but also slingers and archers and shield-bearers. The bows used by the Assyrians were recurve bows that had significant penetrating capability. Chariots were an important part of the army, and there was at least some use of single-horse cavalry. The Assyrian chariot evolved over the centuries, from lighter vehicles to heavier war carts. It is expected that the chariot remained a mobile firing platform regardless of this evolution in size. This means that the chariot was used for a passenger to shoot arrows, sling stones, or throw javelins from rather than to charge directly into infantry. The changing of chariot size may have been to compensate for the firepower of their opponents and provide greater protection for the vehicle occupants. Arguably, the most impressive elements of the Assyrian military force were probably the military engineers and logistical elements. The Assyrians planned for large campaigns better than any of their contemporaries, that is, until the end of the empire, when they didn't. One interesting note from a relief sculpture is the image of Assyrian soldiers using inflated animal skins to help them float as part of an assault river crossing. 
This demonstrated a level of planning and organization that seemed to be absent from most contemporary militaries as this approach needed stockpiling of animal skins and the organization of providing the inflatable skins to the river crossing location and then recovering the used skins and reusing them to get the entire army across. This is one example of being good at planning and preparing. The Assyrians also brought a wide array of tools to the siege. The Assyrians combined passive siege techniques with active attacks against the walls and gates. They used battering rams as their primary siege engine, since large projectile weapons like catapults and ballista were not yet developed. The battering rams evolved over time from a simple pry bar with a protective covering for the operators to larger rolling small buildings that could house multiple engineers and had attacking rams, prying tools, and water buckets to extinguish fire attacks from defenders. Later, the Babylonians expanded on the Assyrian capabilities with complex mathematical formulations to assess the needs for siege ramps or length of assault ladders. I want to provide an example of a siege in this area. In 701 BC, the Assyrian Empire came into the kingdom of Judah, and the Assyrians boasted of taking more than 46 walled cities. One of the ones captured was a fortified city called Lachish. During the campaign, the Assyrians laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. This invasion came as a result of the king of Judah's refusal to pay the agreed tribute to Assyria. This willful rebellion required a response. The irony is that King Hezekiah would pay a massive tribute to get the Assyrians to leave that required him to take material from the doors of the temple and objects from the temple. In this story, it is essential to appreciate the difference in scale and size between Assyria and the kingdom of Judah. Judah was a small state with a relatively small population. The common people spoke Hebrew and the educated elite spoke Aramaic, or, as expressed in the quoted passage, Syrian. I will go back and forth between the passage from the scripture and commentary. The entire discussion is in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 to 37. I will skip some parts of the passage. The Assyrian king sends emissaries with a military force to Jerusalem, while he remains in Lachish. Those emissaries are bandied with by emissaries from the king of Judah. Quote, and Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah. Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Thou sayest, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust, that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even upon Egypt, on whom if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all that trust on him. But if ye say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away, and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Close quote. The Assyrian emissaries call out the foolishness of the king to trust in Egypt and question whether or not the God of the Jews is with them as Hezekiah has recently destroyed altars and sacred groves, not for the God of Israel, but for other pagan gods. I continue to quote, 
Now therefore I pray thee, give pledges to my lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee two thousand horses, if thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants, and put thy trust on Egypt, for chariots and for horsemen? Close quote. Here the Assyrians are calling into question the manliness of the Jews. Can they ride Assyrian horses? If they aren't that manly, why trust the weakness of the Egyptian chariots? I continue to quote, Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said unto me, Go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, unto Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and talk not with us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said unto them, Hath my master sent me to thy master, and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men which sit on the wall, that they may eat their own dung, and drink their own piss with you? Close quote. The spokesman for the Assyrians wants to speak clearly to those on the wall of the dangers they face in opposing the Assyrian army in their own language. I continue to quote, Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language, and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and of honey, that ye may live and not die, and hearken not unto Hezekiah, when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Ipha, have they delivered Samaria out of mine hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of mine hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of mine hand? But the people held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, Answer him not. Close quote. Here the spokesman of Assyria again offered the defenders a semi-false hope that surrender would result in a better life than defeat and death. Note also that he talks about deporting them to a land like their own. They also call into question the connection of the Jews to their God and express that the gods of other people have not protected them from Assyria. Now to some analysis. The three men who come to the walls of Jerusalem speak Aramaic, the Syrian language, and Hebrew, the Jews' language. They also know about the larger political situation in that Judah has turned toward Egypt as a protector rather than Assyria, with whom they had an agreement to pay tribute. The large political picture is expected 
These men should have known why they were in Judah. The impressive point is that they knew the internal issues in that they knew that Hezekiah had destroyed the high places and altars of the idol-worshipping pagans. The men addressed themselves to those guarding the walls in Hebrew rather than simply to the elite with whom they spoke through Aramaic. They reminded those within earshot of the horrible things that the Assyrians had done to other people. They reminded them about the fact that warfare was a contest of favoritism of the gods and that the Assyrians had demonstrated that their gods were with them. They seriously called into question whether or not the God of the Hebrews was with them. This is a great display of the effort of the Assyrians to understand the people, the policies, and the internal politics of the peoples with whom they are fighting. This also demonstrated a technique that puts more light on the earlier mentioned public relations of the Assyrians. This was an army that, while it besieged the walled city of Lachish, sent an army with intelligence and psychological operations experts to try and convince an opponent to capitulate rather than doing so through military force only. This supports the theory that Assyria demonstrated selective violence to generate terror that would support a broader psychological campaign to make the fighting easier or unnecessary in other locations. All of this story clearly demonstrated the fact that the Assyrians were able to bring to bear a form of psychological power to the battlefield as a result of previous campaigns, terrors, tortures, and publicized atrocities that would then allow a spokesman to threaten the city and literally intimidate them into capitulation. It required the counsel of a prophet to strengthen Hezekiah against capitulation in this case, and only divine intervention protected the people of Jerusalem from destruction, as we are told that God sends the angel of the Lord among the camp of the Assyrians, killing many. All of this must be considered when understanding the abilities of the Assyrian military machine. The army of Judah is much less understood than that of the Assyrians, and, as such, much of what will be said is in comparison or contrast to the previous comments about Assyrian arms. Additionally, because of the references within the Book of Mormon to the Sword of Laban, there is often credence given to the idea that the army of Judah was a sword-based army. This was not true. Like all of the other armies in the region, this was a spear-based army. The army of Judah was a combination of a standing security force, a levied militia, and mercenaries, some of whom were Greeks. The standing security force was responsible for providing both security within Jerusalem and other major cities, as well as providing military outposts along the frontier border. This should not be viewed as similar to modern standing militaries. They did not receive the training of modern soldiers. It may have been that these men were levied as well and then placed on the stationary duties rather than as a professional force. In times of military crisis, the king would raise an army based off a semi-standard levy system that would draft men from villages, tribes, and families to create a large field army of tens of thousands. There is also evidence of Greek mercenaries being stationed at some Judah-controlled outposts, which supports the idea of the use of mercenaries in meeting the security needs of the kingdom. As previously stated, the primary weapon of the army was a spear, Warriors of Judah also carried a straight sword and a shield. Personal armor was common of the permanent force, but it is questionable how many of the levied force would have had armor. 
armor tended to be in scale or plates rather than the Greek-like solid breastplate. The sling was a common weapon of the people and common within the army as well. Additionally, archers were also a component of the army. The army of Judah in the 7th century was not an expeditionary force and existed primarily to defend the kingdom from attack rather than to attack the enemies of the kingdom. The kingdom was no longer expanding and the concept of laying siege to opposing cities was extremely rare and does not appear in either the Old Testament or the writings of Josephus for this period. Therefore, the army did not have the variety of tools and equipment described in the Assyrian army discussion for the simple reason that they did not need them. The people of Judah did have walled cities to protect against the attacks of armies as well as the raids of nomads and brigands that seemed ubiquitous on the fringes of civilization in the ancient world. These cities had complex defenses that included stone casement walls, towers, and gate areas that may have included inner and outer gates and a passway between. Throughout the gate area, any opponent could be engaged with arrows and other hurled materials. A casement wall was a wall of large stones that formed a frame or case in which smaller material was used as filler. These walls were less expensive and challenging to build than solid stone walls. They also required a great deal less skill from the constructing artisans. The walls had the added benefit of absorbing some of the impact from battering rams, as the loose material gave way before the ram, rather than simply opposing the blow as did solid stone. The Battle of Megiddo in about 609 BC was a battle that poses some interesting speculation for historians as there are little to no relevant details. This is a battle that pitted the Egyptian army under the pharaoh Necho II and the army of Judah under Josiah about 100 years after the previous discussion on the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. The armies met in the Jezreel Valley close to the city of Megiddo, as recorded in both 2 Kings chapter 23 and 2 Chronicles chapter 35. The most significant recorded event from this battle is the fact that Josiah was killed by an arrow. One account suggests that this occurred as he rode his chariot in front of his troops to encourage them. Besides the fact that losing your king while he is trying to encourage you is hardly encouraging, this battle is an enigma. It is clear that this battle was an open field battle, fought outside any walled or fortified enclosure. It seems that the armies formed up in battle lines, and that is when Josiah took his chariot and he rode in front of his army, and possibly in front of the Egyptian army as well. This may have been to challenge his own army by demonstrating his fearlessness. Once again, there is a lot that is murky. It is possible that this may or may not have been an actual clash of the armies, as a mortal wound to the king may have ended the battle before it really began. Or, this may not have been known to the army until after the fighting was completed. I provide some suppositions on the course of the battle, as it may be informative of what Lehi and Nephi understood of battles and wars, as they recorded their thoughts in the Book of Mormon. It is possible, though this is nothing more than supposition, that Lehi, or possibly Laman, Lemuel, or one or more of the sons of Ishmael, may have participated in the battle as one of the levied forces. If there was an actual fight at Megiddo, then the battle may have progressed as an open order fight. 
This means that the armies were loosely arranged, allowing each warrior room to wield their individual weapon. This means that the armies were loosely arranged, allowing each warrior room to wield their individual weapons, as opposed to the close order favored by the Greek hoplite phalanx, discussed by the Greek historian Herodotus. Open order also indicates a fighting style that allows ranks of warriors to flow in and out of the opposing lines rather than two relatively solid lines clashing and gaps being critical to the defeat of one of the armies. The armies of Judah and Egypt had gaps between warriors and therefore the fighting happened in a zone within the front several ranks of the army. Gaps did not equal failure of the formation. In fact, the formation was not important other than the way to order the fighters before the battle. The initial phase of the battle was probably a missile exchange that include arrows and sling stones. It is important to note that trained slingers with prepared bullets could reach ranges of greater than 300 meters. Javelins may also have been hurled as the armies closed. Once the decision to engage was made, then the armies would close the last hundreds of meters in rapid succession so as to avoid the deadliest aspect of the missile barrage and to provide momentum and motivation for the immediately approaching melee. The clash would see some warriors meeting in immediate combat and others moving through the first line or two to engage warriors deeper in the formation. The battle continued with some soldiers withdrawing to recover and others moving forward to engage. Finding the flank or rear of the army was useful, but not essential as the formation was not critical to the strength of the force. The battle may have been resolved with the first clash, or it may have lasted several hours before defeat began to move through the army like a spreading virus, and the army broke apart in an ever-increasing wave of self-preservation. The classic of ancient warfare is the Iliad of Homer. This great work dramatizes the last days of the fighting outside the walls of Troy at some point between 1260 and 1180 BC, or 600 years before the fighting being discussed at Megiddo. In the possibly fictional representation of ancient combat, several key lessons of the ancient military world are clearly identified. Homer wrote in an era possibly a few centuries earlier than Lehi lived. This means that the Greek mercenaries living in and around Judah were familiar with the epic poem and that the manner of Greek combat was already on its evolutionary track from the Homeric style of combat to the more commonly known Greek phalanx of the 5th century BC. Homeric style of fighting included and probably began with a contest of champions. This engagement was not unique to the Greeks as the famous engagement of David and Goliath was already well ensconced in the psyche of every fighter in Judah. Normally, a contest of champions was simply that, a contest designed to motivate the respective army of the victor in the contest and instill in all of the observing fighters the conviction, determination, and martial prowess of their champion. The contest almost never determined the battlefield decision, though an ancient author may have used such contests to poetically foreshadow such a future victory. In Homer, the battles are focused on the fighting between heroes. The clash of the actual army serves only as background to the more important fighting of the leading characters. It is important to note, and again emphasize, that Homer was writing an entertaining poetic story and not historic fact and detail. The battle of champions, as described by Homer, will be a common theme in several of the Book of Mormon engagements. Just as with Homer, Mormon uses the clash of prophet, 
missionaries, and kings to teach his readers about the greater clashes of ideals, belief systems, and righteousness versus wickedness. I want to make a brief digression to discuss what is otherwise a minor story in the Old Testament, but what should be important for understanding the events of 1 Nephi in the Book of Mormon. The story of Urijah the prophet from Jeremiah chapter 26 verses 20 to 23. The story of Urijah is apocalyptic in terms of the Book of Mormon. He comes before Nephi's quote in 1 Nephi chapter 1 verse 4, but he could still be representative of those prophets that Nephi referred to as coming into the land and calling the people to repent and not follow after Egypt. Because he prophesied against the city of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah, his life was demanded. He fled to Egypt. The king sent men to hunt him down and to bring him back to Jerusalem, where he was tried and executed. The fact that Egypt was no longer a refuge for those who opposed the king in Jerusalem was an important note as Lehi would be in this same position only a few years later. The city of Jerusalem was laid siege to on three occasions during this long century, and this is important to the beginning of the story of the Book of Mormon. The formative nature of prophetic calling for both Lehi and Nephi, part of the difference in perspective between Lehi and Laman and Lemuel in terms of the belief that Jerusalem could or would be destroyed, and the central nature of siege warfare in the experience of Lehi and his posterity. The first siege was laid under the leadership of the Assyrian king Sennacherib in about 701 BC. In this case, the siege of Jerusalem was sort of an afterthought. Sennacherib's behavior seemed as if he was seeking for propaganda points rather than complete conquest, or even the destruction of a really strong and ceremonially important city like Jerusalem. He took 46 walled cities, yet he did not make a serious effort to take the capital of Judah. He sent a detachment and relied upon psychological warfare. In his defense, this nearly worked. Only the strengthening from the prophet Isaiah allowed Hezekiah to stay strong and refuse the demand. Despite this, Hezekiah did pay a tribute to the Assyrian king. The reasons for this less than committed siege are unclear. But there are numerous possibilities. One of the most important reasons might have been the location of Jerusalem itself. It is positioned in the heart of the Judean highlands. The paths to the city were narrow and physically demanding. The water sources for a besieging army in the vicinity of Jerusalem were not plentiful, especially in the summer. Jerusalem had a protected water source, thanks to the efforts of Hezekiah himself that allowed the people within the walls to be insured of water throughout even the longest siege. This would not have been the first time that a difficult location was sufficient reason for an army to bypass a city. Another reason might have been the fact that Sennacherib was not intent on destroying the kingdom and local leadership, but in simply reminding them who was more powerful and where allegiance rightfully belonged. The miraculous salvation of Jerusalem, when so many other cities had fallen, may have been reason for the later arguments of Laman and Lemuel against the prophecies of their father. When Jerusalem had been protected against the most powerful army, how could it fall now? The irony of this false faith was the fact that within the lifetime of the two men, Jerusalem had succumbed to siege. In 598 to 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar brought his Neo-Babylonian army directly against the walls of the city and laid siege. The length of the siege lasted for months, and finally Jehoiachin, king of Judah, gave in and opened his gates rather than wait for a general assault. The results of this capitulation were staggering as thousands upon thousands of leading families and individuals were forced into exile and captivity. 
This group included the king, Daniel, and Ezekiel, among many, many others. It is possible that the departure of so many leading men was a catalyst for moving both Laban and Lehi into the higher councils of the city. The city had succumbed, but it had not fallen. Maybe this nuanced difference was what allowed Laman and Lemuel to cling to their belief that Jerusalem could not fall. Zedekiah was put in as king. His leadership was less than inspiring to the Babylonians, and he was almost constantly under suspicion of disloyal behavior. The perception of disloyalty had Zedekiah called to Babylon for an extended visit and consultation. Shortly after his return, he was enticed by Egypt to revolt and refused to pay tribute to Babylon. This refusal to pay the required tribute led to the complete commitment of the Babylonian army against Judah. The Egyptian pharaoh, Hophra, to his credit, did seek to support his rebellious ally by sending an army once Jerusalem was besieged. Reports of the Egyptian army forced Nebuchadnezzar to break the siege and march toward Gaza to fight and defeat the Egyptians. The people of Jerusalem once again thought they were miraculously saved, but this time they were very wrong. The Egyptian army broke and ran in the face of the Babylonian king's onslaught. Nebuchadnezzar led his army back to Jerusalem, where he again placed the city under siege. This time, there was no reprieve or negotiation. Zedekiah fled the city as the army broke through. He was eventually caught and horribly mutilated after being forced to watch the execution of each of his children. The city received an equally brutal treatment as the Babylonian army razed the city to the ground, including the Temple of Solomon. The people were slaughtered, and all of the horrors of the siege were performed on the unrepentant people of Judah. There was a Jewish community placed under the leadership of the steward and allowed to remain in the land. This community did not fare well, and they continued to disobey the counsel of the prophet. Jerusalem was yet again besieged in 582 BC and then finally destroyed completely and the people enslaved and impoverished. I want to connect a few dots from this ancient Levantine or Near Eastern world and the beginning of the Book of Mormon. 1. Laban, a man with a criminal heart, holds a position of some prominence in the city, probably because he is one of those of the worst sort left in the city after the others were carried off in 597 BC. 2. The brass plates include books from the Old Testament, but they are in the Egyptian language. Why would this be? It is possible that such an offer might have been made by the Pharaoh to the king of Judah or another prominent citizen to communicate that Egypt was on their side. 3. By the way, Lehi can read Egyptian. Since he can read Egyptian, why didn't he flee to Egypt? The very short reference to Urijah gives some clue, as Lehi probably knew that it was an avenue of flight that was expected and that it did not guarantee success. 4. Having a sacred record with the family was obviously important to Lehi, based on his own experience with the discovery of the law in the temple during the reign of King Josiah. Finally, why not believe that Jerusalem could be destroyed? Simply stated, it hadn't been. It had regularly been saved by miracles. The next episode explains what Lehi and Nephi knew of armed conflict from the journey to the Promised Land and the people they certainly met in the Promised Land. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com.
all one word, war in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Depending on questions and comments, I may have separate episodes that are primarily dedicated to answering questions and responding to comments. Until next time.